Welcome to Public Cloud for Public Good, a podcast talking about cloud sustainability and how we can use public cloud services to make the world a better place. Thanks so much for joining me today, Amanda. You are the CEO of Open UK. Uh, I was wondering if we could start there and, and just talk about uh, you know the value and what they're trying to bring as an organisation. Sure. Open UK is a fairly unique organisation and we are the organisation for the business of open technology in the UK. We are fairly unique in that we were the first organisation that's geographically focused that changed to be about open technology. So open source software, open hardware, and open data. We brought that, we created that three opens definition and we brought the, the three of them together. And we did it for a bunch of reasons, but we think you can't really look at software in isolation of data these days and software and hardware are so close. And we see more and more open hardware in the UK as well. So we, we created that three opens open technology and we also focus on the business, whereas most of the other organizations, if not all of them, that are country organizations, geographic organizations, focus on the homegrown. So they, they tend to focus on SMEs because what we've seen in the UK and Europe is that shift where as organizations scale, they tend to leave, sadly. And what we've done is focus on the business, which sounds kind of clinical, but actually means that we focus on the people. So anybody and everybody who works in that open technology space is welcome within UK, Open UK, and we we work across those those people. So we have individuals who work in non-tech companies, tech companies, companies based on open source, users, creators of open source, you know, the whole gambit. And Open UK, is it like a limited company? How is the how is it structured? Is it a charity? How does that work? So in the UK, we have a slight difficulty that we don't have that kind of foundational model that they have in the States. It is something that I really think that we need to, to change over time as a country. But for now, we're a company limited by guarantee. There wasn't an advantage for us in being a kick and it was going to create a lot of administrative burden. So we didn't go down that route. And we can't really get charitable status with the kind of purpose we've got. So that has a bit of a tax implication for us, which is a shame. And uh, we are a company limited by guarantee and a not-for-profit. I should probably add that Open UK's purpose is UK leadership and international collaboration and open technology. So although we focus locally, that's to, to recognize that leadership and bring the leadership together so that our communities can collaborate globally and you know never forget that we're part of that global community. And you've touched on a few things around like, you know, who you target users or you say to anyone, it's people, it's humanity. And you've also got these leaders who are going to share stuff across the world. Who are the main people that benefit from open source software and development of open source ways of doing things? Absolutely every single person in this country. I hope that our state of open reports over the last uh, 18 months have started to demonstrate that, you know, as well as being academic type reports and outputs of surveys, we've tried to share case studies and the case studies run a gambit and they go from organizations like Starling Bank, which is entirely built on open source, Skyscanner, which is entirely built on open source, to places like the BBC, which are huge users, to fashion companies like New Look, that's a big user. So when you, you think about what you do in your day to day, you are uh, you can see almost every area of your your existence and your living has some interaction with open source and that's partly because of digitalization so if we think about how much of our lives are digitalized and even more so through the the, the consequences of the pandemic 
those digitalized areas are software dependent and anything that's sort of software defined or dependent is going to have a huge amount of open source in it today. It's almost unavoidable. Mm. It's something, you know, when I started digging into the idea of open source as a concept, because actually sometimes you do need to go back to basics and just go, okay, what does it mean? What are the principles for this? You know, you're looking at the benefits for government in terms of delivering things, getting public services out there. You've got benefits for corporations in terms of delivering things quicker and, and using templates and using best practices. You know, if every single business in the, in the country had to deal with the same security issues on, on different bits of hardware and software, then, you know, it'd be, it's cost so much more money just to be able to do that. And then finally, you know, it comes down to even the, the people and the citizens of the UK. Open source is all about open source data as well as software yeah. and hardware. So that sort of transparency, that sort of visibility of what is actually going on is valuable to all of us. Um, and I was wondering, you know, obviously you've got those open reports. How else do you get the message out there to, you know, citizens of the UK? Uh, we do all sorts. So a couple of you, I'll take a step back. We, we have three pillars, community, legal and policy and learning. And on the community side, it's about showcasing the centre of excellence that the UK is. We are the biggest open source contributor, open source software contributor. We have the largest number of developers across Europe geographically. So when we Brexited, we were the, the country with the most. If you look at the data that is available and we've tried to cut that, we generally come out fifth in the world behind India, China and the US, which are much, much bigger than us. So, we, you know, we really have a big population focused on this. I always wonder why people don't know more about it. And I assume it's because it's so engineer focused. So a lot of our developer focused, a lot of the time what we see is that we don't have good ancillary skills. So all the sort of sales and marketing and things, we don't have enough of those, the commercial skills. And I think that's what startups find across the board in the UK, but specifically for open source, that's an issue. So we we try to showcase the people and the businesses. And we do a lot on social media. We do actually a a huge amount of social media. We do a lot across the conference circuit. We've arranged a series of talks. We've just actually gone through our archive and pushed those out in social media again because now a lot of them were done through lockdown and they're the kind of thing that it would be hard to get all those people to do it on a normal basis. So, you know, we were trying to share that, make that information available. We created a kids camp that uh, we gave away 8,200 digital gloves based on a glove that uh, Imogen Heap uh, as an adult has. Yeah, the musician. Yeah. So it's a musical glove and Ariana Grande toured with it. We gave away a kid's version of that and created two courses which use that glove to teach open source software. But actually, we also taught the sustainable development goals and the sustainability because the, the values and the principles of sustainability, when you look at those, really align with open source. So we do that sort of showcasing. We do events. We join other people's events. We respond to consultations on laws and we do a lot of policy work. We're in the process of setting up an all-party parliamentary group to educate and encourage MPs to understand open better, uh, the open technology better, that education piece. And we're now focusing on 2023 doing something for young primary school kids. And also at the sort of student level, we're looking at building out a massive open online course with a, a Scottish university. I mean, all of those things sound so amazing. I love how it is all the way from childhood of, of you know, sparking imaginations, make music, has a great glove. And not only is it open source, but sustainability as well. You know, I yeah. say this a lot to 
junior developers and people who are looking to move into tech is like over the next few years and decades, sustainability is probably going to be one of the number one skills, no matter what your role is in tech. And if you can start looking at it now, you'll probably get ahead uh, of a lot of that. But yeah, that all part, all party parliamentary group then, you know, what are the, what are the challenges that you're presenting to them to say, this is how open source solves them. And, and this is why you should invest in terms of regulation and policy. We're in a slightly odd position in the UK. So through the economic work we've done following other people's methodologies and calculation methods, we can demonstrate, I think it's 46.15 billion. I might not have that exactly right. I'm not good with numbers, but about 20% of the, the UK's digital economy. And this is all in the reports, but you can see that as a, a percentage is huge. But that's looking at sort of old ways of measuring and looking at lines of coding, looking at number of developers. It doesn't really show the value generated. And when we start to think about things like infrastructure and the platform economy that we live in now, the value that's generated from that 20% is going to be maybe 40, 50, 60%, maybe even more of the, the digital economy. And I think that the problem is people don't understand the way that open source underlies technology. So they get excited about AI and want to focus on that. And I don't know what you think of this. I came up with this yesterday. So it's a brand new analogy. It's like a pizza and open source is the pizza base and you put all the toppings on it and you take a slice and a slice might be blockchain, a slice might be the cloud, a slice might be the internet, a slice might be AI, but on every slice, the base is open source. And that's what we see today, you know, up to 98% of code bases across the board are open source. It's interesting, is it? Because, you know, you look at managed services that even come from cloud providers like AWS, you know, a lot of them are obviously going to rely on open source packages and open source technology and data. And they even offer uh, data themselves. So for like yeah. sustainability initiatives, has access to data to help you solve yeah. problems across the world. And it is interesting how it all intersects and who profits from it as well. Exactly. So what we see in terms of going, you know, your initial question and going back to what is it we're trying to get from the politicians and the, the civil service, we want them to understand that positioning of open source as the pizza base, that the fact that it is so important across technology today, it's not the sexy part. So it's maybe not the bit that they've engaged with. We also want to un them to understand how much of it goes on in the UK and how good we are at it and how much leadership we've got so that it's something that they will also champion and will help to make the UK the best place. So back in 2010-11, when Francis Maud was the cabinet minister, the UK's position of open first in the public sector was absolutely world leading and it's been replicated across the, the globe. And, you know, we need to keep that up and we've got every opportunity to do that. We just want to help them understand it and help them engage with it so that, you know, it is at the front of people's minds when they're looking at policies and how we, we manage it. We also want to see the curation of open source done better in the public sector so that where they take open source and use it, Obviously, the developers have no liability. It's provided in licenses with no, you know, all liabilities excluded in every open source license. And they, they take it and use it, but it's not a free lunch. So you still have all your implementation costs, you have your maintenance costs, you have your governance costs, your security costs, and all of those and the practices around them are becoming known as curation. And that curation is something we want to help them do well. 
So let's say, for example, loads of money was freed up or made available to sort of start tackling the problems in open source. What elements of curation are kind of the most important? Are there any areas where money needs to go into them or organizations need to focus on specific areas like security? It's a really good question. You're asking me very good questions. They're very different from what people normally ask me. So where I would spend the money, I would recognize that we need to pay for maintenance and that there needs to be some level of equitable division of some of the profits made. And I'm not talking about a communist manifesto for open source. I'm talking about making sure that people have jobs or are not as volunteers being expected to do things that are entirely unreasonable. And I, I would be looking at two or three different things. I would be looking at how code is held for the public sector or provided to it and whether there's an opportunity for public-private enterprises, partnerships there so that we can collaboratively build something. I would be looking at doing that on the basis that it can be joined up across countries. You know, it's not all motherhood and apple pie, I know, but I would like to find a way for us to join up that international funding so that the funding is not being duplicated unnecessarily and wasting stuff, wasting assets, and that we make sure that everybody who should be maintained or who is maintaining code is themselves maintained by that picture. But also, I'd like to start looking at some of the economic modelling around it. I'd like to start looking at um, digital as a public good and understanding it better, understanding the sort of value-driven economics to show the outputs. Because although we're working on societal value metrics and we think that opens about a lot more than money, when you come to talk to governments and things, they always want to, you know, businesses, they'll come back to money. You can't escape it. So we want to find better ways of showing that uh, that economics and the value, which will encourage those, not just the UK, but if the UK can take some leadership, it will encourage others to work with us on that. So I'd be looking at structure, infrastructure. I'd be looking at making sure the maintainers are paid. I'd be looking at the economics of it. And I'd be looking at risk because... The, the thing that stops usage or allows blockage in usage is risk. And very few people really understand risk in open source. I mean, you talk about risk. I, I obviously consider risk. Why do you think I started this podcast? Public cloud for public good, focus on cloud sustainability. The biggest risk that I see is data centers, the energy consumption, the growth of technology. In some ways, it's like, how can we encourage people to not reuse like, and also prioritize better ways of doing stuff, so using serverless? But also, when I am using the cloud, how do I know how that impacts the world? What's the data that I have access to? Is it open source? Is it regulated in terms of that format? You know, you're trying to compare apples and pears when you look at two cloud providers right now. And I think for me, that's an area where it's like, okay, can open source come in and, and probably with a strong arm of regulation as well, because you're never going to get these guys to play together, AWS, Azure, and Google to come up with anything that's the same. So I just wonder, like, you know, if we had a standard for this is the type of metrics you should publish from data centers, is that somewhere where open source could contribute? I definitely think open data could. We worked on data centers for COP26 last year, but not on the data side. Well, to, on the data side to an extent, but maybe not as granular as you're talking about. So what we looked at was software hardware data in a data center. How can we open all of those up? What already exists? And we brought together a blueprint of options that are already existing. And that's sitting with Eclipse Foundation now. We're actually doing the same this year on EV charging. I, I think those kind of metrics would be really interesting. There's an organization called Icebreaker One, 
which is doing some of that work from a data perspective. Gavin Starks, who was the, the founder at the Open Data Institute, or the, the first CEO, I should say, not the founder at the Open Data Institute, and would be a great guest for you. Gavin is looking at that. There are lots of people trying to work on those, those sets of metrics. So we've not replicated what other people have done. But I do think it is critical. And I think that there's also a big education piece needed because you talk to people who are really interested in the environment and they don't always connect digital with waste and emissions. And the fact that we have so much digitalization every time we use our data, every time we compute a transaction, Every time, you know, we interact, we're using something that's going through a data center and the emissions are through the roof, right? Everybody knows it's a huge problem. I, I, it's one of those things where I think a, a fair few people know the emissions through the roof or they see it because these data centers know how much power they consume. They know how much water goes through their pipes. But does the rest of the world understand that? And, and I think you're starting to see the cracks appear with islands stopping approval of data centers being built. You know, even if I was an SME and I had your access to your, you know, standard data center Here's the things, here's the, the, the code you mentioned is now at Eclipse, uh, that information. It's like, how can I fit into that model with, with the rest of the providers? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting world where these, these corporations are sucking up a lot of the... Well, it's not just the corporations, it's every individual. And every individual sort of has a responsibility to think about it and how, you know, uh, how they use digital and understanding how the data is being used and what they're doing themselves. But then when you talk about the corporations and data usage, data is a big issue. And we're seeing federated data models that allow practically, it's not even just about opening it up, although it should be opened up in the main, but practically how they manage the interactions between databases and the amount of processing that's involved in the way that databases are called that operational stuff is really important and getting that right will reduce massively. Uh, I was talking to somebody about this before and I, I think this is not a bad quote, but I came up with this concept that data is in danger of becoming the next single-use plastic. And it really is. If we, yes. if, it is, though. If we, you know, it's, it's not a tangible, but if you think about how your data is being used and the more we simplify that and the more we minimize that, the better. You're right. In terms of, you know, single-use data, a lot of the times we have things like Google Analytics, we have uh, SurveyMonkey, which are giving you all these extra features that you never really asked for, or you might not even know how to use properly. And they're just like, okay, throw all the analytics, put it all somewhere, and, and who knows whether we're going to access that again. And I think it's interesting how, what's stopping, where are the boundaries to say that's too much, or, 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 or this is the rule that stops you from doing that? Well, it's also a bit of a hoax, right? So I've been around a long time and I started working in the mid-90s on the internet from a legal perspective. And I was a lawyer for 25 years. So by 99, I was in, I actually worked for Dixon's, the retailers, and I was working on something called FreeServe, which was the first free ISP. And I worked as part of a team of 12 that took it through an IPO. So I've watched from the original Data Protection Act and the mid-90s how we have progressed. And at a point in time, big data was just the biggest buzzword. And everybody was spending, you know, these big companies were spending millions and consultants to come in and look at their data lakes and how they're going to use the data. And it was the biggest hoax. You know, nobody really understood what they wanted to do with it. 
And unless you know how you're going to analyze and cut the data and what you want out of it and how you're going to interrogate it, there's no point. It's one of the things I, I focus on in some ways is like this idea that we shouldn't just be doing stuff because it might make us money. What's the purpose and value what we're trying to build? Well, you're not going to see shift. So in a lot of ways, even if you look and you, you, you may not have correlated these, if you look at last year and the fuss around Elastic, moving Elasticsearch off an open source license to the proprietary SSPL license. So, you know, the open source communities were really upset about it. The fork is effectively Elasticsearch. But that kind of activity was driven by the fact that a company that's making money wasn't making as much money as it felt it needed to, now, rightly or wrongly don't really want to get into whether that you know is appropriate or not but that will always be the case because it will always be justified by companies for shareholder value and if the, the single driver for companies is shareholder value that is technically what they have to do and it's not just the the commercial and business guys that will follow that the legal teams which I've also been part of will do back to this risk topic they will do the simplest things or the ways that are most foolproof for their organizations to be risk averse or within the organization's risk tolerance. And that means that they'll uh, manage things in a way that may not be as progressive as they can. So something like open source coming in was something they pushed back on initially. And for 10 years, we saw you know, lawyers and procurement people stopping open source adoption then the world changed from a technical perspective and suddenly engineers are able to just go and bring it in on GitHub. But what people don't get is that that changed the whole risk profile. So lawyers and procurement people would manage the risk and the curation in those contracts. But if you don't have a contract because you're just picking it up from GitHub, then you you sort of completely circumvent that. I'm just realizing that people can't see my hands my hand gestures while I'm talking, so I need to say more words. Um, but <laughs> you circumvent it. It means that you then need to focus on policies and procedures, and you need to do things well and implement them. But there's so many different things that we've talked about today that if you tie up all of those threads, it comes back to how we do things and whether we care about just making money, just shareholder value, or whether we care about a bigger picture that includes things like sustainability and people and making sure that if somebody is part of a community where they're maintaining code, that they're also rewarded for that. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd agree with that. Let's bring it back to more than just shareholder value. And and, and that's, I mean, this is one of the problems, you know, you've analysed everything the Fred we're talking about today comes back to that question. And even that is, is a symptom of something else, which is concentration, which is, 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 is not something that isn't very diverse, whether that's the corporations that exist, which are profiting the most and, and, and contributing the least potentially, and is concentrated in their hands a lot of the money, or, you know, these, these priorities for shareholders uh, being prioritised for, for just that one thing. We'll get back to our interview soon, but I really want to highlight that it's not all doom and gloom in the world. So now is the part of the show where we shine a spotlight on companies, charities and organisations that are contributing to making the world a better place. Supporting ethical businesses and charities that are doing good in the world is the easy way for all of us to also contribute when we're able to. This week's company is Data Vita. They are a data centre company based in Scotland. And I really wanted to highlight them this week after I saw a post from their CEO, Danny Quinn, on LinkedIn. 
They are expanding into Scotland's first metro data center. And actually, not only are they expanding, spending about eight million pounds to add extra capacity to their data center and their cloud services, but they're also committing to taking the data center completely off grid. So what that means is they'll put wind energy in place and battery power so that they can reduce the energy consumption and isolate it from the grid. Not only is that great for reliance and, and, and resiliency in the event of any issues on a power grid, but it means that as they're expanding the data center, they're completely net zero in consumption of energy costs to run the data center. And I think that's something that's really amazing and you don't really have to do it by law these days, but it's great to see when data centers are doing it just from their own choice. And that's something that, you know, I think more businesses should be considering. I think for me, you know, you've talked on a lot of things about maybe best practices. You've got a book coming up, which covers a oh, lot yeah. of this. Do you want to cover that as well? Yeah, okay. So I have a book that I looked back at my email the other day and I've been working on for five years. I had no idea that we started in 2017 with, uh, you know, talking to the publisher. So it's been published by Oxford University Press and it is between five and 600 pages long. So if you need to stand on something to reach a cupboard, it is definitely going to be a helpful book. It's uh, open source law policy and practice. And it is the second edition. It's picking up something that was done by Queen Mary University 10 years ago and very much internationalizing it. There are 24 chapters by 23 authors plus me. I write the chapter on commercial models. It goes through the whole range of intellectual properties, so copyright, trademarks, contribution, agreements, uh, community, and how we got to this point. Really interesting chapters on economics and standards. And of course, standard essential patents in my mind and the way those have been used by certain companies just now are sort of the biggest threat that we've got around the corner for open source. The, you know, the, the push to have these friend licensed patents and the, the friction between those and open source in standards is a, a real problem. So the book covers all sorts of stuff and effectively it will help people who are starting the journey of understanding open source and curation or looking at an academic point of view, it will really help them. But it's also fairly well indexed. So I think for individuals or communities who just want to dip in and find an answer to something, it, will, it won't give them the legal advice, but it will help. And the, the way they're going to be able to do that is that although, you know, a legal textbook of that scale is expensive, it's also going to be open access. And that's been provided thanks to the Veach Foundation who've paid for that, which is really exciting. I mean, that's always a balance, isn't it, of, of sort of like, you know, you want to do something that's open, you want to pay fairly and, and have volunteers, like, you know, be able to live. And then how do you sort of, you know, contribute it to everyone? No, no, I'm the only person being paid and <laughs> the, all the other authors are not being paid and my, I'm being paid a small percentage of each book sold. But of course, I'm encouraging everybody to use the open access. So it's not about making money. We've all done this because we know it needs to exist and we, we want it to exist. And, and thinking about that story then, you know, how you've kind of got to this point and published a book in an open way versus Elastic's journey of starting open with maybe not the intent at the beginning to close it off, but to basically rely on the community, rely on the benefits of open source until it was too good uh, and, and they thought they were big enough to, to sort of make more money off it. Like, what would you say is the best practice, like future startups, future people who are getting into open source? How should you approach this? What's the best way? Yeah, I, I think you're being a little bit harsh there, actually. And I think I'm quite down on what was done around the blog post that Shay Bannon, the founder, did around doubling down and open. And I'm quite outspoken about it. 
but he's also a big open source person. And I don't think he did it with malintent. I think that as time went by, things moved for Elastic and they had a lot of investors and their requirements changed. Um, I think Shay did a lot of good stuff in open source and probably continues to. It's not something I've sort of looked into or followed. But there is a piece around business models. And one of the things that open source has failed to be is a business model. And it's failed to be it because it was never meant to be it. That's not where it came from. You know, depending on how you've interacted with it, you'll view it in many different ways. But open source is, you know, a sociopolitical movement. It's a methodology for coding and it's become, you know, the norm in how we code. It's a collaboration methodology. It's all sorts of things, but it is not a business model. And I think what we see is people not understanding business. And I think you see engineers going into set up something as an open source project. And historically, I think it was okay that they hadn't thought through, well, I'm going to make a business out of this. How do I do it? Today, I don't think that is okay. And there has been reporting on it and um, good analysis of it since 2008 that I know of. So you're talking 15 years, so people should know better. But when you sit down and set up a, a business that you want to open source, I think you really have to think about how am I going to make money? How am I going to be able to pay the people who are going to work on this? And there are only about eight models so far that have ever worked with open source. And when you, you, you know, you come up with something new and then you sit down and think about those eight models or six to eight models, they always fit within them. You know, it always comes back to that. So you have to sort of sit down and work out what those are and what they are for you. And I think you also accept that that's not necessarily going to work out the way you expect it to. And a lot of projects start thinking they're doing one thing and then shift and end up finding that they make money slightly differently. But, you know, you're going to do subscription or enterprise or curation or whatever it's going to be called. You're going to do support. You're going to do consultancy services. You're going to create bespoke code for people. You know, there's a bunch of the ways you can do it. You can do your your whole um, sort of platform type environment with your SaaS stuff. But there are only so many that are going to work. It is interesting how you, you know, you talk about some of the issues, like, you know, you need to pay your staff, you need to think about how you grow. What would you say the risk of, of taking on too much investment is or giving away too many shares where you have to start proving, you know, the return on investment quite early? Like, is that something these models address? You know, none of the models will address anything like that because the, the, the model is about how you generate revenue, how you commercialize the product. You're talking about how you grow your business and how you operate the uh, how you structure rather than operate. Now, that's something that I think a lot of founders come a cropper on. I certainly used to see it not just in the open source space as a lawyer, but across the board. And a lot of people take investment without understanding the consequences of it. I actually met Peter Zeitstow from Percona earlier this year for the first time, and I spent quite a lot of time with him. And I didn't really know much about him. I was surprised by how much we hit it off. And Percona hasn't taken investment. And I don't know if you know Jetstack, our entrepreneur in residence, Open UK, Matt Barker, who was with me at Canonical. He's the founder and he didn't take investment. And it, it drives the business very differently if you don't. It doesn't always make things easy, but it also gives you a lot of freedom and the ability to stay true to your values. And I think what you see, sadly, in some instances is that the founders don't last very long. But there's also this piece where, you know, if you wanted to have an operation on your brain, you wouldn't go to a dentist, right? 
So why would you expect an engineer to be good at running a business? Now, some will be. Like as a lawyer, I think I'm better at being the sort of CEO of Open UK than I ever was at being a lawyer in any company. So, you know, you don't necessarily end up with the right label through life. So there is room for change. But generally, your skill set as an engineer is not going to be a business one. And I think we we should be looking at that and trying to educate engineers more if they're interested on how they commercialize things and business skills when they're, they're studying, if they study, or just making those accessible like the MOOC will be. The MOOC that we're doing, although it's an open source, will be sitting in an entrepreneurship school. And we think that's where it belongs. It will have engineering fed into it. It'll have legal fed into it. But generally, it's about how do we make businesses scale? So I think there's a piece here where we really have to think and understand that we need a range of skill sets and that each of us brings a piece to it, but that one person won't do all of those. Yeah, you say, you know, founders don't last long. I imagine there's some element of burnout in in those areas as well. Either if you are bootstrapped or are investors. I mean, bootstrapping is slightly different, but yeah. I think there's that, but I also I think there's an element that's sad that sometimes there's naivety and they, they don't understand how they're going to be diluted out of a business. Yeah, that's true as well. I mean, you even see this, not just talking about businesses, but communities. You know, there's been some communities recently where, you know, original founders of, of movements can be pushed off the board effectively. And, you know, that comes back to structure and how you put those, uh, you know, documents into place as well. That's not necessarily a bad thing, says somebody who's potentially, you know, she's in that position herself and that it keeps us honest. If you're leading an organization, the ability to fork an open source is the ultimate threat. So if your community isn't happy with you, they lift and shift. And sometimes that can just be a divisive thing, but generally I think it's healthy. And it keeps leadership in check. Collective power keeps people in check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a bad thing. Yes, I definitely agree with that one. Um, so kind of wrapping up a few things then is a sort of a big open question. You know, looking at the state of open, has open source software won? Is, is this always going to be the best way of doing things? Uh, I don't think open source has won or lost at this stage. I think what's happened is that open source has become an inevitability and that's brilliant and I think it's the right thing. But without better understanding of how to do it well, what we see is a sort of tick box exercise for a lot of organisations and a lot of public sector where they open source code by putting it on a public repo Yeah, putting on a public repo and adding an open source license. And if we're lucky, they understand that an open source license is an OSI approved one and that's good. So they do that, but they don't think about the curation element and they don't do open source well. And until we ensure that that happens, we will not have a future for open source because it will be too easy to say it hasn't achieved the goals. It hasn't, you know, this is shit. Basically, this open source stuff you brought me is crap. And uh, I think that that will rapidly lead to a back pedal because effectively the, the way it's been done by some is almost as if it's proprietary code that's been stuck on GitHub with that open source license. And, you know, you ask somebody how it's going to be maintained and they tell you they've got a three year contract. That ain't open source. I'm really sorry, but it just isn't. So getting that bit right and ensuring that we're building structure we're building good governance, we're building good practices, both technical and, um, you know, from the legal and compliance and intellectual property perspective, 
All of that will mean that we help to create code that is well-maintained, that is the best code, but also it will help us to make sure it's going to be secure. And when we have problems with security, which are inevitable across all software, not just open source, across proprietary too, but it will help us to be able to respond better. You know, understanding our supply chain, having software bill of materials in place, that whole picture will see a big shift. Now, if we can help governments to understand that, if we can help to make that happen, then I think open source will win. But I think we're at this absolute teeter-totter, you know, that point on the seesaw where it could go one way or the other. And, you know, we really have to take action. Yeah, I worry that the direction of this government at the moment in terms of, you know, you look at stuff like the government service standards and the assessments that go on around them, that's changed internally, a lot of policy there over the last six months. You look at platforms like publishing your data to gov.uk and all those open data sets, you know, they've been published there, but where's the governance and where's the kind of maintenance? Obviously, they're not going to be very successful if it's if it's four years out of date at this point. And let's see where the future holds. Um, but moving on to kind of the last few points of, of the episode, then, um, what is the, is the one thing you'd, you'd give our guests to, to live, work or code more sustainably? I would give them an understanding of how they're using their data so that they don't fall into the trap of using their data in a way that will make it become the next single-use plastic. Perfect. Thank you so much. And as a thank you for coming on today, uh, we're going to be dating £500 to a charity of your choice. So who's that charity and why? That charity is Geek Zone, which is a mental health charity for geeks everywhere like myself. And I'm a trustee. Brilliant. What's the sort of thing that they offer then to, to geeks? Yeah, they, they do all sorts of different things and they're just getting to the stage of having their first premises. They uh, they do, I think it's at seven o'clock on a Friday, uh, sort of pull up with a pint kind of thing and they have a space where people can always come in and chat. And I have to say their geek uh, definition is pretty wide. So they, they offer all sorts of support. I do love the idea though. You know, that's one of the things we've lost in public investment in general is community spaces. Um, you know, as council budgets get cut, as corporations come in and take over sort of the maintenance of, of our public spaces, you know, where's the profit in, 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 in somewhere you can just go and, and meet someone in your community? So I'm so glad that you're looking at that through Geek, Geek Zone. So thank you for coming on today. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll speak soon. Thanks very much, Aaron. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Imbue, a cloud sustainability consultancy. There's one final thing from me. I would love it if you could do one thing this week to make the world a brighter place. And if you do want to share it with us, then please get in touch with us on social media or leave it alongside your review as a comment.